Well, good morning. Welcome. It's good to come to you this way, and thank you for joining us for worship. Several years ago, uh, David Freeman co-authored a book entitled, A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. It was a travel guide of sorts that recommended all of the best places that you needed to see in life, and it was an, an inspiration for all kinds of other books that came after it, a hundred thing books. And it was even an inspiration for a by a movie, an award-winning movie uh, called The Bucket List that had Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholas doing all kinds of wacky things as they thought about the ends of their lives. But back to the book that was the inspiration. Dave, Dave Freeman, when he wrote this, picked out those things to do, but he only got through about half of them before he accidentally fell in his California house in the, in the hallway, and he died at the age of 47. The buddy that wrote the book with him said it wasn't a heart attack. He was a very capable guy physically. Somehow he just fell. He shouldn't have, but he did, and he died. In their book, towards the beginning, they described kind of the rationale for what they were trying to do. They said, this life is a short journey. How can you make sure that you fill it with the most fun and that you visit all the coolest places on earth before you pack those bags for a very last time. I don't think Dave Freeman had an opportunity to pack his last bags. Because the truth is, you never know what your next day is going to hold. Now that's not something that Freeman originally came up with. It comes from an ancient writer in the book of Proverbs, who was probably some of the inspiration for a lot of what James had to say. Proverbs 27.1 puts it this way. Don't brag about tomorrow, since you don't know what the day will bring. Dave Pearson from here in the church has a huddle group, and he, he sent out a note this, this last week, and he said, many of you know that Sharon and I were supposed to be on a two-week Caribbean cruise right now, right in the middle of all this. They had never looked forward to a vacation anymore, he said. We actually had just finished packing all of our bags weeks ahead of the scheduled departure, which he said was certainly not normal for him. I think the saying is, man plans and God laughs, he wrote. I vowed never to do another stay-home vacation. Well, at least, Kevin, you're not home alone. You've got Sharon there with you, so that's good. Now, honestly, if someone had told you three, four months ago that we would be in the situation that we are today, experiencing all of what's happening around us. Would you have believed it? Life has a way of turning on a dime and changing in a single moment, and that happens both for good and and for bad. You wreck your car, and your car and your whole world gets in a mess all at the same time. You go on vacation to some tropical island, and there's a tsunami that comes in and overwhelms your whole island world, or you you sit in a doctor's office and she sits down to tell you that she's sorry, but the reports have come back and you've got cancer. Well, you can write the life script because you've experienced it, and yet all of us seem to forget that you just don't know what the next day is going to bring. Now, there are a lot of ways to deal with uncertainties. Uh, You can pretend that the reality is not there. You can deny them when it gets upon you, or you can just feel overwhelmed by them. But what I want to talk about today is, is how believers can respond to something like this. 
Now, you shouldn't be surprised because James has had such practical things to say. You might, you might wonder whether he'd have anything to say about this particular moment, but I, but I really think he does. Now, his words were on my speak, uh, preaching schedule for about uh, three weeks from now, but I decided that given the situation, we would just skip ahead because I think it's so relevant what he has to say particularly as a reminder even for me that best laid plans often go arise. I even thought about changing the title of the series to the coronavirus theology, but I thought that would be a little depressing, so we'll just stay with where we are and keep the anxiety tapped down. So here's the issue. In a time of uncertainty, like we're experiencing right now, how do we answer the question, what about tomorrow? Well, Let me take you to James. We're going to go to chapter 4 of his book, and we're going to start in verse 13. He says it this way. Look here. You who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there for a year and make a profit, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. So turn with me to uh, James chapter 4, and we'll begin at uh, verse 13. Look here. You who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year and make a profit, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, We will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Now, let me suggest to you there are two routes that we can take when we face the circumstances of a life, and they'll make all the difference of how we deal with uncertainty. The first route is one of human pride, and the other one is of divine trust. Now, James Imagine some kind of enterprising businessman. And the language that he uses implies that it's somebody who's a part of the fellowship of the church, part of the faith community. And they have a plan for their work. Today and tomorrow, or tomorrow, they're going to travel. They leave a little wiggle room because, you know, life can have little things that are out of control, variables, not big, today or tomorrow. They've identified the place where they plan to travel. There's this certain town, a point on a map. They have a timetable. They will stay there for a year. And they've even anticipated the outcome of their enterprise. They're pretty sure they're going to make a profit. They figured out a plan. They know what they're going to do tomorrow. Which leads me to ask a question. Is there anything inherently wrong with planning? Or is that what James is trying to say to us? Or is he just saying that what we ought to do is, is wing it in some kind of spiritual way in life? I don't think that's at all what he's trying to say. I don't think he's opposed to planning, not even opposed to making a profit as long as we do that in a healthy way. If you go out in the entryway of the, of the building here, you'll see that there are plans hanging on a wall for, for an expansion of this building. It's, it's built up with dreams and expectations and hopes all sketched out and lines and measures and, and renderings. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, although... We've even discovered that circumstances can change as you think about what you can do tomorrow. 
whatever area of life that you're in, whether it's your, your work, your personal life, your spiritual life, there's really nothing wrong with making a plan. In fact, I would say it's, it's, it's wise. If, and here's where we come to this first warning that I think we pick up as we talk about James. He describes this dangerous attitude of human pride. He starts out by focusing on the, the human part of the equation before he gets to the, to the God part. And he says you, you need to remember that you are human and humanity is frail. To put it bluntly, all your best laid plans might not happen because, frankly, you could die tomorrow. Your life, he says, is like this fog. It's ephemeral. It just kind of bakes away as the sun comes up and, and happens. Now, that's the pleasant thought. Well, it's really not a pleasant thought, is it? Especially in the middle of all this coronavirus and stuff like that that we're dealing with. And isn't this a time when we should kind of have a sense of reassurance? Well, we'll get to the good part a little bit later on, but I need to stay right here where we are for a little while to talk about our, our frailty. George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, one time said, the statistics of death are quite impressive. One out of one people will die. It's a reality of our human frame, and that includes you and me. So in our planning, James says, we need to realize, to understand that we're fragile. There's an ancient psalm, Psalm 90, that a lot of times we'll quote. It says, 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble, and soon they disappear, and we fly away. <laughs> More pleasant thoughts. The, the distance of the time isn't too bad, but the pain and pleasure and the uh, problems kind of uh, doesn't make it too exciting. I have a good friend who was an elderly member of a church that I first served in the, in the early days of my ministry. And when he got into his 80s, he would uh, point me to this psalm. He would say that at that point in his life, he was living on the bonus. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him in a few minutes. But uh, the psalmist lets us know that when we have achieved these, these marks in life, we have had a, a full life. Now, in the spirit of this passage, I, I thought that it might be good. I'm, I'm not sure whether it was a good idea or, not, idea or not, but I decided that I was going to get a sense of how longer I could expect to live. And I went on the Internet, and I checked out a lot of actuary tables, and uh, I got varying estimates. I went to the U.S. Social Security page, the first. They suggested that I could live to 85. Now, it has this footnote on there that says, this does not take into account a wide number of factors such as current health, lifestyle, family history, which could increase or decrease your life expectancy. But I thought 85 is a pretty good number. I could, I could live with 85. But I pressed on. I went to a site called bankrate.com, and uh, they said my expiration date was more likely going to be around 82 years of age. So I decided I'm sticking for now with the Social Security. I, I'm going I'm to hang there. Well, I pushed my quest on a little bit further. I found a site called Blueprint Income, and they asked me a bunch of other questions about my life and health, and they they gave me a 75% chance of living to 82. And they said, that is 4.6 years more than most other people. I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty good. And the best part of it all is they said my life expectancy was going to be 90. 
Well, I tried one more. I'm pushing my luck. I went to a site called John Hancock. You know, it's an insurance company. They got a good name. Anybody that's named after an early American leader like that ought to have some, you know, some stability and some, some authority. They told me that I could make it to 91. So they won the prize, and I stopped my search right there. I don't know. I may live to 90. I may not live until tomorrow. But however you run the numbers, it's only a possible expectancy. There's all these other factors that figure in, and at no time have we been more anxious than in the middle of all this coronavirus. James warns us that if we presume that we've got a whole lot more years, we might have them, but then again, we might not. So in any aspect of our planning for life, we need to take into account the, real, the reality that we are, we are fragile. We are like the fog of the morning that quickly is evaporated by the heat of the rising sun. I might get to 50 of the 100 most important things I need to do before I die, or I may just check off 10. James says that if we plan without a thought for our humanity, it's presumptuous. Or, as I've captured it here, it means we're proud. In fact, these these businessmen that were going on the trip said, in their own words, I will do this, or I will go there, or I will stay this long, and this is the city that I'm going to, and the truth is that there's really none of us that is absolutely sure of what tomorrow is going to hold. Someone has said, on a long enough time frame, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. The reality is, our lives are fragile. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a good plan. Just keep in mind, it may not work the way you thought. Jesus one time told a story, a memorable one, about a, a rich farmer who had done extraordinarily well for himself. It's found over in Luke chapter 12. In fact, his fields had produced such a remarkable harvest that there wasn't enough room to put all of the harvest in his barns. They were too small. So he says to himself, this is what I can do. I will tear down my scrawny barns, and I will build up big barns, bigger and better barns that will hold everything that I have. And so that's what he planned to do. He was confident that his plan would be successful, that he would have years to come of bounty. In fact, he says to himself, now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Seemed like a good plan, a prosperous plan, maybe almost a, a certain plan. But God speaks to this man, to this rich man that night, and he calls him in a pretty harsh way a fool. A, um, a challenging but a true description. He may have had a great plan, but God says what's going to happen is you're going to die this very night. Kind of like the guy who wrote that book that was trying to get through all the hundred things but only got to 50. God went on to say to this foolish farmer, then who will get everything you've worked for? And then he adds this postscript. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. It's not just that our humanity is fragile 
but that our relationship with God is critical. He needs to be the center of her life, of, of our life. There was a phrase that was used back in, uh, in the old days when uh, we were talking about doing this or that, and people would say to each other, uh, God willing, and if the creek don't rise. Do you ever know anybody that said that? Maybe you've used that phrase yourself. Uh, that elderly guy that I talked about early on that was living on a bonus, uh, he had a time when he reminded me of that. It was early on a Sunday morning, uh, and I got a phone call from Bernie, and he said, Preacher, I'm not going to be able to make it to church today. The river is up. We'd had this huge, unexpected flash flood in the eastern Tennessee mountains that had, that had come through the night before, and it had completely cut off his house. And so I got in my car, and, and I drove as close as I could get to his house, and even before I got there, I could hear the roaring of the water before I could even see it. And sure enough, it had cut off his house and all those that were around his. It had, it had taken out the massive tower of our of our uh, uh, local radio station. And there were a few houses that were just kind of pulled away too, and a church, a church courtyard that was all in a mess. And it completely rerouted the river in a, in a way that it hadn't been before. And on that morning, uh, the creek did rise. Now, nobody expected that to happen, but it interrupted the whole life of this small town in which we lived. And it stayed that way for for, for a good while. But Bernie got back in his house. A few years later, one day, he got in his car and he drove out on a road just north of town to get some vegetables at a, at a, a farmer's market that was just a, alongside the road. And it was nigh, uh, you know, close to sunset and the sun was shining right in his eyes and he pulled out and he was blinded by the sun and he got broadsided and he died immediately. I went to his house with his son, who lived not too far away. We walked in there, and everything, of course, was just the way he left it. There was a rocking chair in the corner, and there was a, a Bible that was on the end table beside his rocking chair and his glasses upon that. So evidently, you could tell that he'd gotten up that morning. And he'd read his Bible. He had his priorities of his life straight, but he had no idea what the day was going to hold. I don't think that God would have looked at him since he had his priorities straight and called him anything like a fool, I think much more likely he got that nice phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, Jesus is trying to wake us up to understand that we really don't know what tomorrow holds. If we want to have a well-planned and a successful life, that's okay, but it calls for us to do that with a sense of humility, which leads us to the second part, of the good thing that he encourages us to do, and that is divine trust. Now, we talked about the creek don't rise, but what we didn't talk about is the good Lord willing. Um, here's what you ought to say, James says. This is how you should make your plans. This is how you should live your life. This is in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that, Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Back to Proverbs, that inspirational text, Proverbs 16, 9, it says, You can make many plans, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. There is the human plane that we just talked about, and there is the divine plane. And God is ultimately in charge 
of both, and we are not God. Thomas Akempis one time put it this memorable, memorable way. He said, man proposes and God disposes. The, the pride of life, he says, is a dangerous thing. The person who brags and boasts about how much control they have over things has a false view. In fact, has adopted an evil course. We confuse ourselves with God. And so James, as we pointed out, says, what you ought to say is this, if this is what the Lord wants, if he is willing or shortened, God willing. It's almost like there seemed to be a deeper awareness of this in the life of the early church because you see it reflected in, in key leaders and the language that they used. And maybe it's because they were close to the time of Christ and they took their cue from Jesus. You, you recall that he even did that. In his model prayer, Matthew 6, verse 10, part of that prayer uses these words, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will. On the dark night before he was to die, when he was pleading with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, and this is Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. And more than once, the Apostle Paul used almost the same kind of language. He was leaving the Ephesian church at one point, and he said to them, this is in Acts, 16, uh, Acts 18, 21, he says, I will come back, God willing. He was writing to the church at Corinth, his first letter, and he said, this is 1 Corinthians four nineteen, I will come in soon. If the Lord lets me. When, when's the last time that you or I made a plan and we conditioned it clearly with the thought, if God's willing? Now, it's interesting, this, this conditional part of what James has to say, the thing that we need to put in there when we make any kind of planning, uh, came to be called the Jacobean condition. Now, now James... Uh, Jacob is the Hebrew word for James, and so that's how they came up with that Jacob, the uh, Jacobean condition. But basically all you need to remember is if God wills. That was that concept that continued on even through to the time of the church in Rome and when Latin was an important part of the language there. And they, they, they used um, some different words to be able uh, to describe it. They used the word Deo Valenti. Deo Valenti, if God wills. And they, they would use that, and they would put that the end, at the end of a lot of the, either when they would write a letter or when they make some kind of a statement. And to shorten it, they just used the initials D-V. In fact, it became, became so popular that it, it continued on and on, even when the Latin language was, was not the primary in the church. And all the way down, the Puritans loved it in the early life of the U.S., the Methodist under Wesley's influence, in fact, they would, they would write their letters, they would tag everything they had with those initials DV, if God wills. Now, the condition doesn't mean that we just sit back and don't do anything to help plan in our life, but that we are forever conscious of God's will. The opposite of a human boast is the simple acknowledgement that God's will is an important part of what we do. So, 
how are we to face life? Are we, are we just to be anxious about everything? Is there a pervading uncertainty that we just have to live with? Are we paralyzed by the moments that we're experiencing right now, maybe even terrorized? Or to put it very specifically, what, if anything, does James 4 have to say about COVID-15? Well, obviously, he didn't have any idea what was going on there, but I think one possibility that James might speak into this moment is this truth. Don't cease to plan, but choose to trust. Don't choose, don't cease to plan, but choose to trust. Lead your lives or even lose them, but not with fear, but with hope. Against the uncertainty of life stands the certainty of God. His will overrides all of the other things that are going on. Now, I'm thankful for agencies like the CDC and all those other abbreviated things in our country that are trying to help take care of things, but my, my hope is not so much in the CDC as it is in this Jacobian condition, the, the DV. What is God's will? What, is, what does he have for us? Now, there, there are some people who just glibly say, Lord willing, and they don't really actually live like it in their lives at all. I'd prefer to be someone who chooses to say God willing in a sense that I'm aware and open to what God might want me to do, the acknowledgement that there's somebody greater. I won't quit doing and planning what I am, but I will also assume that I don't have all the answers to everything in life. Now, there is one last sentence that we haven't said anything about in this, this passage, and it almost seems like a, a foreign stitch of the fabric in the end of this passage. James in verse 17 says, Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. People sometimes just pull that one verse out. And they talk about sins of omission, and, and I guess you could build a little bit of a case like that, but it's the caboose, it's the end of the passage that we've just talked about, and so it makes me think that it may have a lot more to do with what was said before than what we might allow. For us to know God's will is primary in our lives, but if we do that, yet we live our lives without the least bit of of awareness and openness to what God might have us do, James is saying it's a sin. Or maybe here's another way to look at it. If you don't... uh, want to put that Latin abbreviation down there, maybe maybe to help remind you, when you write certain things, you know how a lot of times put an asterisk on something uh, that kind of reminds us of something else? Maybe what we need to do is to live our lives with an asterisk. Uh, the sense and the awareness that God really is in control of this world and His will is more important than mine. Somebody once said, If you want to make God laugh, show him your plans. Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce was the founder of World Vision. He was a a remarkable humanitarian organization that still exists today and has just helped millions of hurting people around the world. He was asked near the end of his life how he accounted for what God had done through him. And he, he replied that a lot of it had to do with this simple prayer that he'd learned. Lord, I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you like without informing me in advance. 
I think what Bob Pierce was saying is we have to learn to live a life of trust, a life of faith. There's nothing wrong with trying to somehow manage our way through crises to plan our ways towards what we hope will be healthy and hopeful futures. But in the end, it is the presence of God and His will in our life and in this world that will mean more than anything. So, in these trying moments when we're trying to figure out what to do, I'm glad that there are wise people that are trying to find ways for us to have a healthy path forward. But I'm even more thankful for a God who cares about us and wants to work His will in our lives. I hope that I move away from pride and that I embrace with you trust. Let's pray. God, we are all, no matter how hard we try, proud people. We, we're way too self-confident. We have especially those of us that are, that are here in the West and in America, we, we have such overwhelming confidence in our abilities, our capabilities. I pray, God, that the circumstances that we're facing right now will remind us that we don't have the answers to everything, that there are some challenges that really have uncertainty painted all over them and would somehow cause us to trust you in a, a deeper, a much deeper way. Help us to live our lives with an awareness of your will. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. We're going to close out the service this morning. Hopefully, you can join us uh, at home or wherever you might be as you're sharing this uh, by having a communion time together. Find whatever the closest thing you can come up with that will approximate uh, something to remind you of the body and the blood of Christ. And let me just, let me remind you of a couple places in Scripture to center our thoughts as we get ready to share this, this meal together. On the night before Jesus was to die, he had, he had just told his disciples, who were still scratching their heads, trying to sort it all out, he had told them that he was, was going to die. And yet, uh, there were all kinds of reactions. Peter one of his closest disciples had, had said that he would be faithful to him and that that surely wasn't going to happen. And Christ had some fairly harsh things to say to him about it. And then he prays and he shares, which is sometimes called the high priestly prayer, this interaction that he has with the disciples. And let me read you just a few verses out of John 14. He looks into the troubled eyes of his disciples and he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. I want to read you one more verse. And that verse is written by Peter, the guy who the night before Jesus was to die, had told Jesus that nobody, nobody would abandon him, and then he did it himself and lived through that regret until he was restored by Christ. But then he pens these words to the young church that he's encouraging, those believers that are out in the world. This is in 
1 Peter 5, verse 7. I love these words. He says, God cares for you, so turn all of your worries over to him. I wonder if you remembered that night before the cross and the words of Jesus that he quickly forgot but then remembered again when he said, everything's going to be okay. He cares for us. Let me, let me pray as we go into this time of communion. Thank you for joining us as a part of the family here today. Let's pray. God, for the gift of your son, for the sacrifice that he gave us on the cross for his body and his blood, just now we give thanks. And even though your family is separated by distance, as we're all meeting in homes or other places apart from each other, really unlike what it is for us on a typical Sunday, I pray that this, this meal will somehow give us even a greater sense of connectedness as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup. May we not only be aware of you, but may we be aware of each other, that we're all a part of the spiritual family. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.